Well, good morning. My name is Stephen. You got me? Got me? Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm a pastoral resident here at Grace. I want to add my welcome to those of you in the West Hall and those of you worshiping with us at home. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 1 as we continue our series on 1 Peter that we're calling Elect Exiles. Um, in, the, in your pew Bible, it's on page uh, 1014. It's also printed in your bulletin. And we're going to read from verses 13 to 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me before we look at this passage. Lord, as we come to your word, which is sufficient for our salvation, as well as for knowing what you desire for us, we pray that you would clear our thoughts of distraction and fix our eyes on your son. In Christ's name, amen. Well, many of you might know that uh, my wife Sarah and I are expecting our first child next month. And those of you who have gone through a similar experience, you probably know that it completely reorders your life. You've got to shift into baby prep mode. Uh, You've got to stock up on diapers, pick, pick out and assemble the crib and other, other furniture. You've got to get ready for that baby's arrival. It's like you've got to put on a whole new mindset. In all honesty, I'm a little out of my element on this because Sarah's been doing most of the work so far, but you can bet that when it comes time to assemble that furniture, it's going to be me doing it. Part of this new mindset, though, is just getting ready for all the uncertainty of when the baby will come. Uh, you, you know, we have a due date, but what baby actually shows up on the due date, right? So you have to be ready for the baby to come at any moment. For example, did you know that they recommend that you're supposed to install the car seat one month prior to the baby's due date? I did not know that. (laughs) So we live in this tension. We know that the baby's coming. It's going to happen. It's a sure thing. We just don't know when. And so we have to reorder our lives around that coming reality, whether it's right around the corner or a little bit more distant in the future. Well, something, something similar is operating in this passage, albeit on a much grander scale. Peter is telling his readers to look forward, ultimately, to Jesus' return and to reorder their lives in light of that coming reality, though when it might happen is uncertain. Nonetheless, it's coming. That day is coming. You can bank on it. In fact, he says, set your hope fully on it. But our hope in that great day requires something of us in the present. 
And that is a life that is characterized by holiness. So what we learn in this passage is that God calls us to hope fully in the coming reality of Christ's return and to live holy lives now that are consistent with that hope. So God calls us to hope fully in that coming reality that Jesus is coming back and to live lives that are consistent with that right now in the present. But how? Well, this passage points us to, I think, three things that are helpful. First of all, it gives us the mindset of holiness. It gives us the condition of holiness. And finally, it gives us the ultimate motivation for living holy lives. So first, what is this mindset? Well, if you remember from last week, Pastor Nick showed us that God, in, his, in this letter to his chosen people, his chosen exiles, uh, is pointing them to a future inheritance. It's, a, it's an inheritance that's undefiled. It's kept in heaven for them while they are being guarded here on earth. He points us to that inheritance to give us hope in the midst of our exile, with all of its struggles, challenges, and difficulties that we might endure for the sake of Christ. But now Peter is transitioning to what a life that is looking forward to that hope looks like. But before the command to holiness comes the right mindset, the right attitude. And that's why he says here in verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says, do this by preparing your minds for action. It's a very vivid image. A literal translation of that would be, gird up the loins of your mind. If you can imagine a man in ancient times who kind of wore a tunic that might go past his knees, if he was about to go into battle or if he was about to do some kind of manual labor, he would probably gather up all of that extra material and like wrap it around him and tuck it into his belt. That's what he would do to prepare for action. So Peter is saying, do that with your mind. We might say, get your head in the game. Wake up to the eternal reality that's coming. Jesus is coming back. But he also says to be sober-minded. That doesn't sound very fun, at least not to me. But let me tell you what sober-mindedness is not. It's not being a prig. It's not being self-righteous. It's not being joyless. It's not being severe. What sober-mindedness is, is it's taking serious things seriously. It's understanding all of those spiritual realities that God has revealed to us, that sin is not a light thing. It corrupts our very nature. It's enormously destructive. And that God will judge and make right every wrong. And that Jesus is coming again to finally and manifestly rule forever. It's taking those things deathly seriously. So that is what Peter is saying is the mindset for holiness. Get your head right. Expect Jesus to come again. Expect it. Put your, all of your hope in it because it's the only sure thing to come. So don't become spiritually sleepy like you don't expect him to return. There's a little book called, um, there's a little book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And the story takes the form of a series of letters written from this senior demon named uh, Screwtape who's advising a junior demon named Wormwood. And Wormwood's job is to tempt this guy called the patient uh, to get him to stray from his faith. And in one of the letters, Screwtape writes that humans live in time 
but our enemy, meaning God, destines them for eternity. So in other words, we live in time. We are temporal creatures, but God has us on a path to eternity, which is timeless. Screwtape tells Wormwood that God wants his people to attend to chiefly two things. First of all, to that eternity, and then to what we have to do in the present. And so he advises Wormwood to get his patient away from focusing on eternal things and on the present, and instead, have him focus on the future. You know, the future, that time between the present and eternity. The time that is uncertain, it isn't really real, it's unfixed. And Lewis writes that all of our vices are rooted in the future. Fear, avarice, lust, ambition, they all look ahead. Our anxiety looks ahead to yet unknown failures and losses. Maybe you've experienced that. Our ambition looks ahead to more power, more status, more wealth. And Screwtape says that we desire a man who is hag-ridden. I love that term hag-ridden or distressed by the future. We want a whole race of people perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. People who are never honest, nor kind, nor happy now. Isn't that part of our problem that keeps us from putting our hope fully in our eternal destiny? We're actually more occupied with with what might happen between now and then the future of career, the kid's future, or whatever. And we give very little thought to what God has for us in eternity and how we should live right now in the present, in light of it. And that puts us in a spiritual slumber. And Peter says, wake up. Get your head in the game. Put all your hope in the grace that will be brought to you when Christ comes again. That's the mindset for holiness, living as if you have an eternal hope in Christ, serving Christ in the present as if his kingdom is actually coming, which it is. That's a fact. You can bank on it. So do you have that sort of mindset? Is your head in the game? Are you planning and ordering your life now around your eternal hope? So next, Peter points us to the condition of holiness. And that condition is this, that we have been set apart by and for God. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the first command here is to not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The word here for passions is, it might be familiar to some of us, epithumia. Uh, Remember that word from the summer when we were talking about the fruits of the spirit? It means over-desires. Our tendency to have disordered loves that drive us to destructive behavior. Lust, greed, anger, envy. These are all over-desires. And here Peter says that those are things that you used to do when you didn't know any better, in your former ignorance. But now you are obedient children who know better. You know how destructive those things are. You know how God wants you to live. In this case, ignorance is not bliss. It's deadly. So don't be conformed to those over-desires as if you didn't know better. Instead, he says, 
Be like the one who called you, the Holy One. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is drawing that phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy, from the book of Leviticus, where it's kind of like interwoven through the book. And yes, it means live a holy life, be blameless in your actions, but I want to convince you that what's really in view here is the idea that God's people have been set apart, consecrated for God, for his purposes, and therefore separate from the world. So listen to these words from Leviticus 20, starting at verse 22. God says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I'm bringing that the land that I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or anything with which the ground crawls, for I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So God is saying to his people, Israel, that I have made you distinct from all the peoples of the earth. You are my possession, so you will have a different way of living. Don't become like the people around you. They don't please me. But you will be consecrated to me for my purposes alone. And your condition as my holy people determines your conduct. So that's what it means when it says that we are to be holy. What does it mean for, to, to say that God is holy? Well, when the Bible talks about God is holy, it means so much more than just his purity. Certainly that's part of it, but it's mainly pointing to two other big things. And the first is that God is separate. He is an altogether other. There is no other being like him. He is separate and completely independent from his creation. He is sufficient in his own being. That's the first thing. The second thing that's in view when we, when we call God holy is that, is that God is transcendent. He is above all things. He's so utterly beyond us in his creation. He has absolute power over creation, and creation, including us, have zero power over him. He is consuming in his majesty. He is exalted in his loftiness. He is infinitely distant from us. We can't come to him. He must condescend. He must come down, reach down through that infinite distance and make us holy. Only God can consecrate. And that's what he did with his people, Israel. He consecrated them to himself by saving them from slavery in Egypt and then giving them his perfect law. He specially chose them as a people to be separate from all other peoples, distinct in all their ways. And it was the law and their obedience to it that actually made them distinct, made them stand out as distinct. So listen to what it says in Deuteronomy. This kind of illustrates the idea that the law, their obedience to the law would make them distinct to their neighbors. It's from Deuteronomy 4. Moses is teaching them. He says, keep the Lord's commandments and do them for 
That will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? See, Israel's obedience to the law made them stand out. It was directly proportional to how distinct they looked. And also it was a testimony to how God had condescended, had come down and, and made them holy. But we know this side of the cross that God's eternal plan was to consecrate people from every nation. And that is what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. He has again reached down through that infinite gulf between him and us. And those who place their trust in Christ are consecrated to him. They are separate. They are distinct. They are considered holy to a holy God. So this command to be holy as God is holy, it flows from the special relationship that he has created with us. It cannot be understood outside of that context. When you placed your faith in Christ, you became consecrated to God, distinct from all other people on the earth. And so you are to be a non-conformist to the culture around you, not withdrawn from the culture, but distinct you also are to have a distinct way of living. But I think that our problem is that we actually don't want to be distinct. We'd rather be respectable and accepted to our neighbors or by our neighbors, by those around us. But friends, there will be times where our calling will be at odds with what it takes to be considered normal and respectable. And this desire for respectability can cause us to make one of two errors, I think. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Peter, in his life, at one time when he faced opposition, he, he, he fought. The other time, he just blended in. He warmed himself by the fire. This is somewhat similar to that. I think one of the errors is that some of us try to maintain our respectability by pushing back against the culture. And th I think these types of people are, are those who don't really have a problem with standing up for things like traditional values or individual rights. But they're not doing it, or they're often not doing it, out of a desire to be distinct. They're doing it out of a fear of a changing culture, a fear that they will lose the standing and respectability that they once had. And so what they try to do is they try to shape the culture so that they don't become alienated from it. That is one of the errors we can make when respectability is our highest goal. The other one is the opposite. Other, others of us maintain respectability simply by blending in by making moral compromises, by trying to resemble those around us. Some of us would be terrified, absolutely terrified, if our coworkers, our neighbors, or even some of our friends actually knew what we believed. We fear the social ostracism for ourselves, sometimes even for our kids, and so we take a low profile to maintain respectability. So where are you on that spectrum? Resistant to the culture so that you don't become alienated from it? Or do you try to hide out? Neither of these attitudes actually reflects what it means to be holy. What it means to be set apart, distinct from the world. God, the Holy One, the separate and transcendent God, has reached down, 
consecrated you, set you apart, made you unlike the world, and called you for his own purpose? Do you live out of that identity, that condition? Do you live out of your consecration? Take a moment and think about how different our lives might be if we really understood our condition as holy and consecrated people. If we were free of that desire for respectability and acceptability. No more hiding who you really are. No more fear of others finding out what you really believe. No more desperately trying to maintain influence in a changing culture. Instead, we'd be free to be bold, to love others like no one else does. Totally secure in our status before God and totally convinced of our purpose in him. Not withdrawn from our communities in some sort of like holy huddle with a fortress constructed around us to protect us from the world, but distinct from them. And out of that distinction, we serve and love our communities and world. So we've looked at the mindset of holiness, placing our hope, going all in on Christ's return, taking serious things seriously, and we've looked at the condition of holiness, that we've been set apart by God for his purposes, and now finally, Peter provides us with the motivation for holiness. And he does this by pointing us to the costliness of making us a holy people. So look at verses 17 to 19 with me. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter says, yes, God is your father, but he's also the judge. And he judges impartially, completely, fairly, according to each person's deeds. So live your life in the fear of God. It's fear of God. It's, diff it's different from fear of man. It's living your life in reverent respect of him because he judges. And one day he's going to judge the whole world. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute. I thought that if we trust in Christ, that God has placed all of our judgment on him on the cross. And yes, absolutely, yes. But what Peter is saying here is that we, as redeemed, ransomed people, ought to know how terrible and awful sin is. Of all people, we should know that. You should know because your dad is the judge. So this, this should be like inside baseball knowledge to us. We are... We are all either judged inside of Christ or outside of him, and that is a serious matter. So live a life that shows reverence and respect for that. But do this with an appreciation of the costliness of your ransom. As Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You were purchased out of slavery of a former way, a life that did not fear God, not with money, but with the infinitely valuable blood of Christ. He lived a life of, per of perfection and then shed his blood so that we could be ransomed from those old ways. I love watching clips from the show Antiques Roadshow. You know that show? It's, it's, it's the one where local antique owners will bring in uh, items to be professionally appraised. 
the best clips are always of somebody who brings in uh, maybe like a family heirloom or something that had just been kind of taking up space in the attic. Maybe it's like a picture that's been hanging on the wall forever uh, or an old set of china or, or watch or something like that. Things that might have had sentimental f uh, value in the family, but things that they never thought had any value anywhere else. <laughs> and uh, my favorite moments are, are, the most exciting moments of the show are when the appraisal reveals that actually that old heirloom is worth a ton of money. <laughs> All those years that they had it, they, they had underestimated its value. They had undervalued it. And sometimes that underestimation had led them to not really take great care of the item. And then once they realize how, how valuable this thing is, all of a sudden they have to like take out an insurance policy on it. They got to get it professionally cleaned and restored. You see, our problem is that we are chronic underestimators in our hearts. We underestimate God's holiness. We underestimate the severity of our sin and the destruction that it causes. And we underestimate the costliness of what it took to save us from it. It took Jesus giving up his, his eternal and perfect relationship with his father. It took the most innocent man in history to submit to the verdict of a kangaroo court and die at its hands. It was costly. Jesus' blood was precious because like, like a spotless Passover lamb, it spared us from the wrath of a God who judges impartially. So this passage is like that great antiques roadshow appraisal. It's revealing to us the value of what we possess so that we can respond with a restored life, a life made clean. And have you come to realize the value of the blood that ransoms you? Well, let me propose a, a litmus test that might help us to assess our hearts in that regard. And that's this. Is there indwell, indwelling and ongoing sin in your life that no longer troubles you? Have you become comfortable with a particular repeated or habitual sin in your life? And, you're no, and I'm, I'm not talking about the continued struggle with sin. Of course we will continue to struggle with sin. But have you stopped grieving it? And if so, you've probably lost your sense of the cost of your ransom. My advice is to repent of it and ask God to remind you of the preciousness of his blood that set you free. Now, if you're not yet trusting in Christ for your salvation, this call to be holy is not yet for you. Because the reality is that we, we can bring nothing good to God. He is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who gives us the new heart to respond in obedience. So come to Jesus and receive his precious blood to set you free. And then you too can look forward to that day when he comes again. So God calls us to hope fully in that final day and to walk today in a manner that anticipates that hope. While we wander as exiles on this earth, we are not at home here, but we await an eternity in God's presence. That is the reality of our future. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you reached down. You reached down through that infinite gulf and drew near to us, making us your possession, ransoming us with the precious blood of Christ. Now we pray that you would help us. Help us to fix our hope on your son's return to honor you with lives that are distinct in their good works as we live as exiles in this world. Help us, we pray, through the grace brought to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.